Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Manthropology, the podcast that opens up conversations about the challenges men face and how they can navigate through some of the toughest experiences life has to offer. Today, we're joined by Jed Highland, a clinical counselor and subject matter expert who specializes in working with first responders who have experienced trauma. As a first responder and a military veteran himself, Jed brings a unique perspective to the table. Jed's mission is to help first responders and their families live healthy and connected lives. And in this episode, he shares his insights into how men can overcome challenges and grow through adversity. That's all today on Manthropology. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Manthropology. Over to you, Kelly. Have a great show, all right? Welcome to the show, Jed Highland, clinical counselor, former first responder, and military veteran. Welcome. That's right. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm going to talk a little bit about your experience with clinical counseling and what brought you to Antarctica, where you are now. But before we talk about all of that, I really want to talk about your first responder experience, your time in the military, your background. Certainly. Picking a good starting place would be that I came from a pretty chaotic home life and dropped out of uh, school around the age of 16 or something like that and moved in with a couple of older buddies and was just not headed anywhere and uh, fortunately ran into, and it's kind of a cliche story, but ran into a uh, army recruiter, Sergeant Nail of all things, N-A-I-L, and he bought me breakfast and uh, he got me set up to take the ASVAB test, which is the military entrance exam. And uh, after I had done that, he's like, hey, listen, we've got this program for people like you. Like you. We, you had to have a diploma back then to get in the military. And he was able to kind of finagle some stuff with a local community college where I was at the time and get me into this, this kind of program that got you a diploma-ish. It was basically a GED program and got me in the military at a very young 17. My mom had to sign for me and it was fantastic. I mean, I, you know, in contrast to a lot of the people, you know, you meet today and frankly to, you know, like my dad and his dad, which I'll talk about in a second, my experience in the military was hundred percent amazing. I went to uh, basic training and AIT and then jump school. And then I went to uh, Europe for three years. And I'm not a combat veteran, but I was in the Army Engineer Corps uh, for those years. And it was just a very supportive environment. It gave me a lot of structure. And uh, would not from that, uh, who knows what would have happened, uh, given my path back then. So that's how I got into the military. And, uh, you know, obviously that experience informed, has informed the rest of my life. After I got out of the active military, I went and bounced around for a while uh, doing construction for a few years and kind of chipping away at a college degree, which I was never very interested in, especially at that point in my life. What were you studying in college? You know, I was studying everything you could possibly study. One of the fortunate things about my my family is it gave me this sort of gift or uh, interest in reading. And so I have been, you know, reading my whole life. And, and that led me down many different paths of curi- curiosity in college. 
I got from a UNM, University of New Mexico, eventually, after 18 years, believe it or not, my undergraduate program uh, ended up being what's called a Bachelor of University Studies, which is just kind of a, a buffet type degree. And I was able to cobble together a bunch of those credits because I took a big chunk of emergency medical services classes in the first responder world. But, but let me not skip ahead too far. So I was never really an enthusiastic student. I didn't like it too much. Basically didn't, didn't, you know, chipping away at a little three hours here, six hours there, ended up not really taking to any formal education until much later in life. So I got back in the Air National Guard uh, after three or four years of just kind of banging around doing construction work and bartending. And the Air National Guard uh, helped me just kind of get organized a little bit. I ended up taking a emergency medical services technician class just on a whim. Like I wasn't one of these kids that was always playing with fire trucks and so forth. When I was, you know, when I was young, I was kind of a, what they call a delayed onset firefighter. Um, I took this EMT class in my late twenties and it was the first time in my life that it was just like light bulb. Like instead of these theoretical things that I had kind of been learning about in college, uh, it was like, somebody gets shot in the arm, here's what you do. You know, somebody's having a heart attack, you know, here's what you do, which really resonated. I got super curious about it, super enthusiastic. And that led me into uh, a few months later, a career in the fire service. So you're like, this is my thing. I was just going to say, my brother was the same. He joined the Air Force when he was 17. Parents had to sign for him. But this is like a theme I keep hearing with people in the who have joined the military. They were a little lost, not sure what their plan was going to be, not sure what direction to go. And the military was just a good fit for them. You think that's kind of like a reoccurring theme there? Yeah, certainly. You see you see that a lot. And of course, the military is not for everybody. goes without saying, um, you know, there are people that get in there and it's, a, I mean, that's actually, it's called a failure to adapt. Some folks, it's not a good fit for whatever circumstances they're experiencing, their nature, their nurture. But certainly it was the case for me. And you do you do find a lot of, you know, men in particular that I've met that really, you know, had not had sort of structure or a rite of passage, which can be a very important thing for, for a man. And the military was able to provide that. And certainly that was the case for me. Yeah. So you said you were kind of like a late onset firefighter. <laughs> yeah. Delayed. Yeah. Delayed onset. So what's the typical age? You know, after having said that, it's kind of all over the map. Is there a cutoff? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, we had a guy uh, in our fire academy, and I hope I'm accurate with his age, but one of the toughest uh, SOBs that, that I have ever met in, in real life as a human, and I'm, you know, 52 years old now, he was 47 years old when we started the academy. Wow. So I can verify that for you after we after we do this. But here's my take. There should be an age limit, except, of course, exceptions make the rule. And this gentleman was that exception. He was like an old school bare knuckle boxer and just a super tough person. Anyway, the, there aren't many age limits in the in the fire service. And it's something that we're looking at right now. Like, should you be out there, at, you know, at, you know, when you get older and some of your, you know, physiology and your your mental stamina has started to decline. Um, good question. So military, firefighting, getting into the first responder world. 
Yeah. Um, I don't think it was necessarily an accident. Um, this might be a good, good thing to mention. I, I benefited in the military from, I think, I, I always had a lot of social anxiety. And I think that gravitating towards these large organizations, these structural organizations can is one of the reasons some of us kind of do that. It's like it gives you rules and it kind of it forces us or, you know, assists us with integrating with other people. And it gives us the you know kind of ability to do that um, in a natural way within these systems. Um, so I always had gravitated towards that sort of structure. But um, as I said, until I didn't until I took that EMT class and, and really, you know, it blew my mind and, and I wanted to get involved in that kind of helping. I did have this general sense that I wanted to kind of help uh, somehow to be involved in, you know, some meaningful occupation that engaged in helping other people. And what we're finding as we study uh, ACEs, more adverse childhood experiences and uh, helpers as it relates to helpers, it turns out that a lot of people that gravitate towards the helping community, be it nursing or social work or being a cop or a firefighter, have a higher level of aces than the general population. Other case, and, and in other words, folks that got knocked around a little bit back in the day, neglected, uh, you know, marginalized, et cetera, in some way or another, and didn't feel like they had a sense of agency and self-efficacy as a you know little little uh, person coming up, guy or gal, gravitate towards these professions, presumably, and, and we're looking at that right now, presumably, so they can have a greater sense of agency, a greater sense of self-efficacy, and help other people have that. And certainly that was the case for me. So getting involved in, in firefighting, I think just was kind of a natural, it, it like move gravitating towards this sort of maybe subconscious need to want to get involved in, in, in that, both having efficacy for myself and helping others with that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Also, I would be remiss not to say that, <laughs> that the, uh, Maybe I read Ivanhoe at, at too impressionable an age and saw Backdraft, you know, and, and it helped kind of push me in that direction. I mean, to me, it looked glamorous. I mean, there's so few, per, I mean, gla gla glamorous, dramatic, romantic. Manly, masculine. You get to be a hero every day. 100%. And I came from a family that that was sort of the coins of the realm, if you will, like being a tough guy which, uh, you know, hopefully we can we can check in on that. And I say tough guy with quotations, but also a tough guy. Like, I still celebrate some of those things, you know, some of those same, I would say, virtues that were celebrated in my family. I think it's just a problem when that's the only thing that gets celebrated. And we can talk more about that. But yeah, I, I wanted to kind of be tough. I wanted to test myself. I wanted to, you know, uh, challenge myself. And I wanted to work around people that that was their jam that they wanted to be up to, you know. So you started then a career as a firefighter. How old were you then in your late 20s when you started doing that? 29 years old when I finally got into the fire academy, the Albuquerque City Fire Academy. Were you ready for it? Did you know what you were getting into or when you started, like what were your initial feelings right in the beginning? Absolutely had no idea what I was getting into when I get in, got into the fire service uh, in so many ways. I think I did have a, you know, I was ready for the paramilitary kind of vibe and and uh, cut hair and uniformity and doing some push-ups and so forth. But uh, I, I have to say, and I can say this uh, 
very easily that the fire academy that I went through was much harder than jump school, U.S. Army, Airborne School, uh, my advanced uh, uh, individual training and Army basic training. It was just it was harder uh, and not just because it was longer, although it was it was just a really grueling process. Wow, that surprises me. I had no idea. How long was it? How long does it last? Uh, so I, my academy was either 16 or 17 weeks around there. Uh, don't hold me to that, but four months-ish. And, you know, there are a couple of things about the, the, the fire service, and I don't mind saying this. Now that I'm not, like, in a fire service job, I can kind of, with love and affection and concern, talk about some of these things, that uh, the fire service gets a lot of the sort of stick elements right that the military has been practicing for years and years. But it uh, it doesn't do the carrot the carrot part very well. Like in in army basic training, for instance, and they have this dialed in from doing it for a long time. That like they break you down. That's part of the thing. But then the whole thing in hindsight just looks like this building process. Whereas my fire academy, and there are many, by the way, not to throw you know my 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 city and this badass fire department I worked for under the bus, but. A lot of the the you know it's metro fire departments really it's just a beatdown. The the whole process is just a beatdown. It doesn't really look like team building. They're not trying to like um, support. There's no like perception that it's a building up process. They're just kind of stacking skills on you that then you go out into the field and start doing first response and you start putting those some of those things together. Okay. Uh, so how long were you a firefighter then? And you you did move. You moved from. New Mexico to Colorado at some point, correct? So I grew up in Denver, Colorado, go Broncos. And I I lived most of my adult life in Albuquerque, New Mexico. When I got out of the, the U.S. Army, my active service, some of my family had moved to uh, New Mexico. And it was just kind of a natural fit uh, for, me, for me to go to New Mexico, which is where I, like I said, I spent most of my adult life there. And then when I retired from the fire service, to your point, to your question, um, after, uh, almost 20 years, I, I had 19 years in a couple of months and I bought a year of army time so I could retire early. Uh, after I retired, I moved back to Denver, um, uh, in 2018. So I spent about 20 years in the fire service, retired in 2018, which was kind of the beginning of my, uh, career. Uh, well, it was certainly part of the gear shift to my career in behavioral health. In the second half of my career, I started, well, I, I might as well just, just start there. So the, the Albuquerque Fire Department is a super busy, uh, one of the busiest in the country. Matter of fact, a, a buddy of mine who is now a fire chief up in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, uh, did a paper for his executive fire officer course and showed that the Albuquerque Fire Department, pound for pound, was the busiest uh, fire rescue system, actually the busiest 911 system in the United States at the time I was there, which I say with a little pride and also a little uh, trepidation. Mm -hmm. um, about 10 years into my career in the Albuquerque Fire Department, I got super spun out uh, for any number of reasons. And that's kind of informed everything that's happened since since then, including me gravitating towards this, this profession. But I was at a super, super busy firehouse and a super busy uh, fire rescue 911 system. I was a lead paramedic and had been for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, we tend to, in hindsight, look back at like what happened, what led to this. 
And there were certainly some big sort of high acuity things that happened that year to me. But um, the intersection of that, uh, seeing a bunch of traumatic stuff just this summer, which I, 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 I make an intentional point not to do too much trauma porn in my conversations because it's pretty well researched, but just some high level trauma stuff with that crew being super busy. I was, I mean, just maxed out, uh, trying to build a house with a, with a buddy of mine at the time, which, which I was way over my head with that. And, uh, my coping strategies included all the cliched stuff that, that a lot of first responders employ, which is just pushing the pedal on the right, um, drinking way too much, uh, not sleep, uh, sleeping, uh, I had actually gone to a prescriber at that point and been like, you know, I've got all this anxiety and I think I've got ADHD. And so this prescriber was giving me different medications. I mean, it was just a, I was a mess. I, I was a hundred percent mess, completely maxed out. Didn't know it. Uh, you kind of, it's like that. I like this, uh, this sort of comparison. Do you know how you cook a frog? It's kind of gross, but do you know? You put it in a pot of cold water and you just gradually turn the heat up and it never knows it's getting cooked. And so that that's kind of what happened to me. And uh, I just if it weren't for really the, I would say, just kind hearted, compassionate, wholehearted, supportive efforts of some of my peers and family uh, at the time. Uh, you know, who, once again, who knows what would have, what would have happened to me? Uh, I ended up getting a lot of good peer support, informal peer support at that time, because we did not have a good team. And, uh, what that looked like is I started learning, learning more about all of the intersectional things that were happening to me at that point. I learned that, you know, just suck it up. Buttercup is not a very good strategy I mean, it's a good strategy for a lot of things. Don't get me wrong. That is that, that is a tool that we as first responders need to have in the toolbox. But that can't be the only thing you've got in there. Um, and that was the only thing I, I had in there. Pe you know, pedal on the right. Just keep moving, moving forward. And, uh, you know, I like I, I like this expression as well. The tougher the four wheel drive, the worse it can get stuck. Right. And so I, I, I feel like I was pretty tough back then, like a lot of my brothers and sisters are. And I got 100% bogged down. In any case, I benefited from learning more. Part of what I benefited from and have and what led me here is I started learning that trauma wasn't just like when you get your arm cut, you know, like traumatic injury happens to us internally. It happens to our psyche. It happens to us uh, mentally and emotionally. And I started learning more about that. And um, along that path, I started I guess gravitating is another good word because there wasn't just like a gee whiz wake up moment where I thought I'm going to go be a therapist. On the contrary, um, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, especially when I first started some of the micro practice I'm doing, I had 100% imposter syndrome, right? Who the heck am I after having made mistakes in my life and gotten totally spun out and used horrible coping strategies in my life? Um, still evolving, you know, all these human dimensions, who am I to presume to go poke my big Irish head into somebody else's life and, and try and help them, you know, map some things out. Probably the perfect person because you know all the stuff that they're going through. Yes. So, yes, certainly that, that adds to some, I think, credibility and competence. 
But, uh, you know, there's some blind spots there, too. You know, here's one thing I have going for me is I do see this as a life learning project. Like, I, you know, um, just like in the fire service, we try and steer clear of people that think that they know it all. Um, I, I certainly, you know, I know that this will be a life learning project and, and I've since learned and we, and we can tie, I hope we talk about some of the strategies that you can deploy as a human with all the frailties, you know, and brokenness of that in order to, you know, collaborate with somebody else to try and help them get better results than they're getting. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsors. And now back to the show. You mentioned this a little bit, the role of supportive family and friends. How important is that for anyone who's going through a mental health issue, but especially first responders? Yeah, it's massive. Um, and the first thing my, you know, my brain jumps to is one of the things, certainly the thing that I did when I was the most spun out is kind of isolate, um, whether that looks like that on the outside or not. And I think that lack of connectivity, and it's something that we we, we certainly preach, my, my colleagues and I preach uh, in the trauma realm a lot, that it's that very connectivity with your friends and family that can be one of the biggest predictors of wellness, of resilience, of quality of life measures. Uh, so, I, you know, you I, it cannot be stressed enough the importance of connectivity, but there are a lot of barriers there. There are a lot of natural barriers for us as first responders, I would say. You know, if I haven't said this yet, that what a cool name for your show, um, Anthropology. Thank right? you. <laughs> that's, that, that's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, I th- on the one hand, I really appreciate that we're, we can have focused conversations about what's going on with men. And I think that's super vital. I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about, you know, here today is universal. Trauma certainly is universal. Distress. But I, I think it, it, it's good for us, if you will allow, for me to talk about some of the archetypally male ways of sort of strategizing and some of the some what's going on there. That'd be great. One of, one of the big things with, with our families, it's, it's like the kind of person that would universally state and feel in their heart that they would trade their lives in a horrible death for a stranger is a unique person. And I'm not describing this just to, to men. I mean, I've worked with just amazing, yes. amazing women. Yep. Uh, I would even say like one of the, probably one of the most superior humans and uh, firefighters I ever met, unfortunately had to leave her career early to, to have a massive medical procedure, but certainly uh, women, um, you know, can do this job well and in some ways better than men. But it, I think it, it would be cool for us to talk archetypal male. So one of the things about the archetypal male uh, person who would show up to this world, train and equip themselves, and then get involved and get ready, you know, and go out every day uh, and do some of this stuff, they don't want to burden their family with what they're carrying around. Um, and that can be tricky. You know, that's, that's a tricky lift because... It's hard to off gas if that's what it's like. And if if you can't off gas or if you can't kind of have rated R, you know, or NC-17 conversations with your spouse, who do you do that with? And, and then you think, well, maybe you sit around the, you know, the kitchen table at the firehouse and you off gas that stuff. And 
to a degree that happens, but the kitchen table, in my experience, it isn't this sort of vulnerable, touchy-feely, free zone for communication that a lot of people describe it as. Because they're all going through the same thing, right? Yeah, everybody's going through the same thing. <laughs> and you say that. I'm glad you said that. The, the, the common experience as I see it, and you know, for those of us, especially folks that are that are really starting to veer outside the lines of health and wellness, um, is that you kind of sit there at the table with your coffee cup, kind of shivering a little bit, and you're like, nobody's gonna snap that that you know that there's a problem here. We do a very kind of a Facebook page, act as if um, kind of a thing uh, for any number of reasons. I mean, one of the things that jumps to mind is the the fire service is a very wolf pack thing and you don't want to be perceived as like this limping creature that can't you know can't hack it can't handle the weight you know can't take it meanwhile now that i do this you know micro practice work and actually get to talk to so many individuals that are involved it's just it's ironic and i mean uh it's not very funny to reflect on like you know three or four people around that table of six or eight people are really on the struggle bus you know, they're just not saying anything. They don't feel like they can be vulnerable because that, for many things, I mean, that the culture of the fire service, 100 years of uh, tradition unimpeded by progress, uh, that, you know, stigma around being weak. Uh, there's any number of things that even though there's people having these common experiences, nobody can really say anything. You can't be vulnerable. So that makes the connectivity with like being able to off gas in our other relationships with our other identities as a dad as a husband, as a wife, um, as a soccer coach, you know, whatever, as a son, as a daughter. Um, but, you know, and that's another thing we do. Yeah, we tend to over-identify with the work. I mean, likely you have seen this firefighter walking down the street with like a firefighter hat, a Maltese cross tattoo, a firefighter hoodie, 16 firefighter bumper stickers on his F-250. Um, and, you know, I don't laugh at that guy. I've, I've been that guy a little bit, although I do have a hard rule of one item of fire representation at a time. Do you have any tattoos? Yeah, I do have a tattoo, but it's uh, it's not fire based. Got it. Yeah. No, the family friends connectivity is is amazing. I can say in my life uh, that, that I had the benefit of, a, a you know, a, a, a friend, a brother, really, of mine um, who who I started the academy with. And, you know, who's still a friend, you know, 30 years later. And frankly, several people that, that I came up with came through that helped support me during that, you know, super tricky time in the, in the really the center of my career that, uh, you know, that are relationships that, you know, I hope other people have, but I suspect just due to some of the, you know, I hate to use low hanging fruit, but like the trauma bonding that happens among our community um, those relationships are very unique, but there are a bunch of challenges there. Like how, how do you show up and be vulnerable when what we're doing is kind of conditioning you and paying you to be invulnerable? Be that tough guy thing again. That's right. But we were talking about the importance of a support system of family and friends, but at the same time, the stuff that you guys are going through out there makes it a little hard on a relationship do you bring home some of the stuff from work? Does it come into your home life and your relationships? Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting that people may have this presumption that there's a way to, um, you know, turn the business on and turn, you know, turn it off. Um, 
we say sort of donning and doffing. If you don't know what the, the word doff means, it means to take off like our gear. Donning and doffing this emotional armor that we have, which is essential for the work. Like in our work, in the first responder work, you have to be able to compartmentalize. You can't just go from call to call to call like some of these people are doing um, out there right now. We're, you know, running, you know, cops have six calls holding the whole shit. They'll sign into their computer and they have six calls holding uh, the whole shift. Like they never, you know, never get to the bottom. We got fire rescue crews and EMS people out there that literally don't see their stations. They just go back to back to back to back call for 24 or 48 hours. So you have to be able to protect yourself emotionally from that. You have to have some emotional armor. The problem with the emotional armor piece is the kind of the more you do it, the more you have to wear that, the harder it is to take off. And so all that emotional armor that protects you from the gruesome, horrible shit that we end up getting immersed in, it protects you from the yummy, juicy stuff in life as well. Like it protects you from, you know, the good parts of life. So that's a really tricky lift. And that's one of the primary things that in our work, I feel like we can look at. How do they do it? Do the first responders get training and how to compartmentalize and how does that work? By and large, no. First responders aren't getting trained in the stuff that you and I are talking about. We're not really doing a super good job of that. The first responder community really has focused traditionally and still continues to focus for any number of reasons, limited resources, uh, tradition. We focus on technical training of our people, and we don't really focus on sort of adaptive you know, strategies or emotional intelligence or bedside manner, et cetera, uh, which is super unfortunate. Yeah, I was going to say, don't you think you should? 100%. I think it's a lot easier to focus on the sort of sexy dimensions of deploying hoses and, uh, you know, throwing somebody over your shoulder, crawling down a, you know, a hallway uh, of a house on fire. Those things, of course, need to happen. We have to train. We have to have mastery level of that stuff. But it's it's a it's a harder sell, especially if you don't know what cops and firefighters uh, and EMS people are doing. It's a lot harder sell to, to go to the mayor, the city council and say, hey, listen, we need to train, you know, we need to train our people in, in mental health. And then that sell doing that, whoever's going to do that, has to has to have buy-in to like there is a problem. And frankly, there's a lot of denial in this space. Um, even now, as you know, the and with people like you, and thank you for the work you're doing, that are leveling up our consciousness about this stuff. You've got all these, a lot of old timer chiefs who, you know, subscribe to the old kind of full tough guy notion that kind of pay lip service to providing us skills and training around uh, behavioral health. So we focus on on technical stuff, which is fun. And don't get me wrong, which I love. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to be a firefighter. But it turns out that like the technical stuff we train around as cops and firefighters like cops with the you know firearm stuff, they maybe deploy their firearm once in the, or never in their career. We as firefighters, we go use our firefighter trade craft, you know, on five percent of our calls. And, and I, by the way, that's even an overestimation. But on those calls, you have to be good at it. So fair. But what are we doing when it comes to just the basically interacting with people having a bad day? We're leaving that up to people to invent on their own, and that's. You know, that's that's tricky. That's that's tricky for for everybody. To me, we should be waiting it um, 
a lot more to you know how how to interact with people, how to manage crises, how to inoculate yourself against stress. Uh, and we just we simply aren't, aren't doing that. You're talking about tactical training, learning how to you know use the hoses and the guns and everything. That's all great, but first responders are many times more likely to die by suicide than they are in the line of duty. Yeah. Uh, this is, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's, that's nervous laughter. It's, it's one of the most horrible and unknown statistics, uh, that I know of that we are much likelier to die by suicide in the line of duty, but we're still waiting all of our strategies, all of our training, um, really the ethos of our culture is based on tradecraft. And, um, once again, not to diminish the value of tradecraft, but, uh, yeah, uh, um, let's do talk about that a second. I think that's good, good gear to shift into. Let's talk a little bit first about the data, if you're cool with that, Kelly. So we don't have good data. Some of the more robust information, and and to give kudos to like the firefighter uh, firefighter behavioral health trust, uh, the gentleman that runs that has been for a long time trying to wrap his or their. Uh, it's a big organization now. Their arms around. What's actually happening out there? We know cops, firefighters, anecdotally, that we're just losing people to suicide. I mean, uh, fortunately, in my career in the Albuquerque Fire Department, as I said, a very busy system, we didn't have a line of duty death there during my career. Some crazy near misses, crazy near misses that angels were on scene. But fortunately, no line of duties while I was there. Um, we had maybe, and I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing a number out there cause I've, I've never really tried to do this before, but we had two or three, every three or four years, suicides of either active members, retirees, or associated people in our Metro area. And, and so those are the ones that you know about. So we know that this is going on and it's the same thing for the cops. Thing about the data is men tend to underreport everything. Men tend to underreport depression, anxiety, etc. Men just tend to underreport, period. Uh, that goes for so-called medical issues too. Um, I tend to not try and uh, extricate medical from mental anymore. So men tend to underreport. So uh first responders as a body tend to underreport too in the culture. Once again, it's tough guy stuff that we've talked about. There is no mandate anywhere to report. Okay. Like there's no national mandate. Actually, interestingly, there was a piece of uh, legislation a couple of years ago that uh, I think came from the police side or ICP or whatever the big uh, organizations with over um, overwatch for the police. They got some le legislation crafted that they're going to try and have it trickle down. So there is now going to be a mandate, at least for police to report. But since there is no mandate to report, reporting is very um disparate it's very fragmented even with that the numbers are still high yeah i mean so so even with all this we know that that levels of suicide in the first responder community are much higher than society at large 10 times the general population is what i've read is that right mm -hmm. yeah and seven percent of all first responders have had a suicide attempt at some point in their life that's a lot that's massive yeah, and that's not the same for folks that you know that 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 work in other professions. So it deserves to be said. 
All right. So, uh, and then are you going to call a death of a guy who, and this is a very common, unfortunately, situation, the the person who, you know, drinks themselves to death in a in an apartment on their own somewhere, that death of despair, uh, you know, are we going to categorize that as a, as a suicide? I, you know, most of the time we don't. These are things that we're not proud of, that we're shamed. There's this huge embroiled conversation right now, certainly in the fire world, as we learn more about post-traumatic stress injury and we learn how it is correlated with the work we're doing. If somebody, we go and high dose them with traumatic injury for years and years, and they end up not having good coping mechanisms, they end up succumbing to a death by suicide or choosing that death. Is that a line of duty death? And it's a very heated, um, conversation within the fire service should we you know celebrate acknowledge this person's career in their life or you know the flip side of that coin is is that like is that a noble death like did that person take the soft option um so there's a lot of divisiveness certainly in the fire service around that but uh, i don't want to veer too far from the data we just so we just don't have very good data about it but what we do have and some of the stuff that you're talking about tracks with the stuff that that i know about that levels are super high and um, they're getting higher as as we go along. Is it getting higher in the general population as well as with first responders? So yes, 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 they are. And of course we've had these other sort of external, just easily identifiable stressors, COVID, um, some of the social justice stuff that coincided with that. Um, I'm using that as a broad umbrella, but some of the upheaval, if you will, social upheaval that that happened uh, recently, which in my view, we have not recovered from at all. People are still very much limping, um, from that, um, that those experiences, some of the isolation, uh, that happened there. So yes, there was a general spike and there has just been this ramping up of, of, uh, what we can call psychopathology, right? People that that have literally measurable, uh, diagnosable mental illness, um, although I tend to, in my work, I don't, my jam is not diagnosing or, or I think we do tend to over pathologize a little bit in our society. So I, yes, people are getting worse, not better. And there are some, some big things. And these are conversations we have a lot with, within the community. What do you think's going on out there? You know, some of the stuff is studied like social media, this five minute news cycle of keeping our sympathetic nervous system activated all the time. And then you take that same person and you plug them into this career where they've got to be hyper vigilant and they got to be watching their six and you know the stakes are super high it just you know a person can only can only take too much and then uh the trauma piece which this complex trauma lens which uh presumably we're going to discuss is that we we are i mean we're for a lot of these people we're exposing them to more more traumatic injury to administrative betrayal in many cases there was a lot of divisiveness that you know pressure pressure just does things to to situations it creates crises what do you mean administrative betrayal well a lot of especially with covid but this has been kind of long simmer uh, simmering departments and this has been you know so you've got purse holding people and organizations overhead who are mandating that the departments do more with less to departmental administrators who are mandating that the boots on the ground people do more with less 
Um, and that just as a recipe for disaster. And I think to a certain degree that first responders by and large uh, have been victims of their own success. Like, it's like, all right, well, we'll take more, we'll do more, we'll take more, we'll do more. And then, for instance, one of the things that's happening, and this is, I did part of my master's uh, thesis um, with the team that I, I worked with on this, is that attrition levels over the last several years, like in the police department from some of the social upheaval stuff, uh, that created administrative betrayal, COVID created a sense of administrative and call it betrayal, just call it distrust. And then there's this moral injury piece, which is a, which which police have had more than firefighters. And moral injury is just another layer of this for people. A, you know, a cop signs up to go do this really really hard job that, frankly, you know, doesn't doesn't pay a great deal uh, in most systems. And they go through a bunch of training. They expose themselves to a bunch of legal you know liability. And uh, they go out there and they work 24-7 in this brutal environment, which is more brutal than just about any job you can think of, unless you've been a combat vet, uh, which many of them are. And uh, not only are they not appreciated for that work of standing out there and, and you know, at night and in the rain and trying to do their best with all these broken systems over overhead that we ascribe blame to them for, not only that, but we, not only do we not celebrate them, we vilify them. So, and then of course there's bad cops out there. That's a different conversation, but just this, the, you know, the, the injury of that, like I showed up to help and then having people be like, you suck, um, is a, is just a weird thing to put on another human being. When I came to this work, I, I didn't, you know, picture myself as, as a clinician uh, and sometimes still don't on, on my more, uh, reflective days, but, um, I came here, I gravitated here because I, I hoped and expected to be working with organizations to have conversations just like the one you and I are having, Kelly. So I, I don't know, um, you know, other than uh, some general observations about some of the things that haven't worked, there is a bunch of precedent out there about how you generate culture change. It's our hope, and I'm actually working right now within my organization. Can I do a quick organizational Shout out. Yes. Um, yeah, a little uh, blatant uh, repping. The organization I work for right now, Nicoletti Flader Associates, is one of the longest, I don't know of any other that, that has been around longer, organize, uh, public safety psychology organizations in the country. And it started in Denver, Colorado. The owner is John Nicoletti, who's a, a, a PhD psychologist, and his wife, who is a clinical social worker started a long time ago, literally like from their car, they would like drive around and connect with different people and organizations uh, that led to uh, to them really starting this practice, which they were, as I, you know, some of the pioneers in this craft, they started doing assessments for, for police uh, departments and that expanded into really this wellness model that we're, that we're deploying now that we're still building. I mean, we're kind of building the airplane as, as we're flying it. Uh, uh, if you'll allow another cliche, chock full of cliches, but, uh, yeah. So the shameless plug for the organization is what we're up to right now to help with culture change. Traditionally in the last couple of years and, and, and I, I preach peer support. I benefited from peer support. I, uh, had the, had the benefit of helping the department that I came from, uh, Albuquerque fire rescue to help kind of start their program and, and create some trainings for our department. 
we have tried to sort of jam the wellness behavioral health conversation through the access point of peer support groups, right? Um, which is good. And peer support groups are fantastic supporting our peers. As I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a believer having benefited myself. But that to me is kind of in, in a way preaching to the converted, right? People that are going to show up for a peer support program are already kind of in the conversation a little bit and like kind of okay with that. Ah, maybe there's some other strategies I could use a little more receptive. Whereas I want to have conversations with the guy, the like really resistant, closed off dude uh, up on the couch. The one who's withdrawing and not seeking out the peer support. Exactly. Who's like that, the deploying that tough guy, you know, stuff that, that really can get us boxed in if it's yeah. if it's overused and not deployed um in a healthy way um and the way to do that is you know rather than try and go through this eye of the peer support programs what we envision i'm working right now some of my teammates at, at nicoletti flater Susie zavala who's actually uh she's she's currently a firefighter and also a clinical social worker uh we came to the organization at the, t- the same time we're envisioning trying to you know, to foster culture change and support our people better through like mentoring, which is is so badass in so many ways. It gets everybody involved, a mentor as a mentee, you know, you give them some skills, it gives people ownership of what's going on out there. We envision some cool training programs for administrators. We want to be able to go help administrators, like tell legislative bodies what you just were talking about, Kelly. Like our people are dying of suicide, y'all. And yes, it would be nice for us as a police department to have a new bear cat or whatever cool tactical stuff. But can we start getting some resources plugged in to taking care of our people? Not only when they're working, but when they retire. You know, how do we take care of their families? How do we take care of, you know, that's another thing we like to do is like involve families. How can we train families and bring them in? You know, do, do outreach programs to families. There's many different ways that we can plug into this culture change. And rather than having this reactive model and and humans are reactive, I get it. And it's in our name, like, you know, like first responder, but how do we kind of turn this telescope around from this reactive model to a more proactive wellness-based strategy? And we're involved in that right now. Are you getting feedback from people who are in the line of duty, the firefighters, the police officers? Do they want this? Are they asking for this and not getting it? Or is it a conversation they're even really having right now? Or are they just sucking it up and dealing with it? So every all of the options that you just laid out before me, I would have to say like E, you know, all, all the above. That's what's tricky is that and, and I can speak the same same thing for me. It was my personal experience. You don't know you're, you know, spun out until you're spun out. You feel like I can hack it. Like, you know, needing additional resources is for those other guys and gals. Um, so we have those people that are just sort of still, you know, having. And by the way, there are people that, that granted, that make it through their whole career. And then it looks like they really do have healthy, healthy coping strategies. Uh, they, you know, they can mix out their identities. So they're, they're not just a cop or a firefighter all the time. Um, but in my experience, especially now with this, this lens as a clinician, those people are pretty rare. They're, they're unicorns out there. Uh, so you have people who are interested, who do have buy-in. I can't tell you how many remarkable people out there. Like I, I had the uh, benefit of going to uh, an IACP convention 
the police are really and and they've been you know they've owned this and there's a lot of pressure on them but it's it's both sides like internally there are so many people in the in the uh, police community at least in North America that are excited about getting their people healthier you know that they don't want their people to suffer the way they did they they really want good connectivity between the you know community and the cops these very healthy conversations that are being had in my perception um from my perspective fires is kind of farther behind that for our own reasons right that our resistance to culture change and that it just hasn't been sort of pressed on us like people really people don't know what firefighters do frankly and i didn't know before i came in you know i thought i was just going to grow a nice bushy mustache and uh you know buy a beat up f-150 and the rest would be easy Firefighters do grow the best mustaches. I will say that it comes naturally. <laughs> there are some good ones out there uh, for sure. Uh, but most of what firefighting is now isn't firefighting. It's really low grade social work. And, uh, you know, you've got these high acuity events, which you got to go to. But it's just really it's more this kind of death by a thousand cuts from a traumatic exposure point of view than it is, you know, these big high acuity events. But, of course, those are sprinkled in as well. So you have this chronic exposure to, to all these conditions and then this high acuity thing happening at the same time. I was wondering what you're seeing with the different generations, the the older generation, the, you know, stoic, tough guy with the younger generation of firefighters and first responders coming in. I know the communication styles are a lot different. How does that affect the first responder landscape and workplace? Such a good question. Let me start by saying these young whippersnappers and their loud rock music, they need to really uh, No, I think that uh, the intergenerational finger pointing that, that we have going on out there can be super counterproductive. I think that the the you know, and I, I hope I can include myself in this generation, although I see myself as a little bit of a tweener. Um, I very much subscribe both personally and in my work to that stoical perspective. I think there's a lot of wisdom from the ancients. A lot of the stuff that we talk about, um, uh, we can benefit from the sort of older perspective. You know, toughness has got to be there in this work. And um, that we can't throw that away. It has to be there. Uh, however, I think that we old timers, and certainly I'm trying to learn this as I go along, can benefit from the younger generation has access to more freaking strategies than the suck it up buttercup. They do know how to communicate a little bit better. They can say what they need when they need it. You know, they know how to articulate their freaking feelings. And I, you know, I mean, even guys my age, even if you say that statement, it will make them cringe. Like, uh, but being able to vent and off gas in a healthy way. So you're not just holding that beach ball of emotion and stress under the water for 20 years until you're, you know, you explode. The younger generation has some cool strategies for that, that we can, we can benefit from. So I very much see this as a, as I do in a crew, as I do in a, a station, as I do in a department, as I do in, in a, you know, as first responders behind the badge, I think a collaboration is the way that we, you know, we do this. Yeah, happy medium. I think they're afraid of showing signs of weakness with all of that, you know, talking about their feelings and yeah. stuff. But I really think that's actually being able to be vulnerable and get those feelings out is actually strength, I think. So totally. I love this expression, Kelly. Have you ever heard this expression that vulnerability looks like courage in others, but it feels like weakness in me? 
Yep. I, I've certainly felt that. Like when I see somebody up on stage or something like relating a like a cool, like super vulnerable story, I'm like, that freaking person is a badass. And then when it's me like about to, you know, be vulnerable, I'm like, ah, I feel super weak. I, I guess that's the thing. But yeah, you're right. It's really scary. Yeah, it's scary. How do you build trust in the first responder community to get them to open up about this? You as a counselor. That's a key, right? And I I imagine that'll be a life project, but I I have at least thus far benefited from the credibility of having been there, you know? And there's a, I mean there's some well-researched strategies for generating trust, but I think you can throw some of that those studies out the window when you just look at what generates trust in all your relationships, which is showing up and being who you are, not trying to affect some other, you know, person um, showing up. And in my practice, like, you know, the way that I, I show up and, and frankly, my theoretical foundation, um, strengths-based kind of a humanist perspective, uh, it's about, you know, not pretending like you're Gandalf or something that you have all the answers. It's about, you know, collaborating with somebody. And I think people can tell right away in a meeting or two uh, how you're showing up. Uh, what is well-researched is the single biggest predictor of efficacy in, in a helping relationship, at least for behavioral health care providers, is the relationship itself. So, uh, you know, whether or not I'm a Harvard-trained psychiatrist or I just took a two-week life coaching class, you have to be able to relate to the person. And I think having been a first responder... Uh, for many people, I can relate. Um, although, as I said, there's some blind spots there too. You know, um, the, it can create barriers. But by and large, I think working in this community that I, hopefully it comes across that I'm so passionate about, uh, uh, who are doing work that I cared so much about, uh, it comes across right away. And, and that that's an immediate bridge builder in the work that I'm doing. Did you want to talk specifically about anything with trauma? I mean, I know we've talked a lot about trauma and you kind of wanted to steer away from it, but were, was there anything you wanted to stay, say well, specifically no, about I, that? I think, and thank you for framing it like that. Um, it's not that I, I think we should steer away from it. On the, on the contrary, but to you know, quote some of your stoic principles, I think that you know, that the obstacle is the way uh, is a really good lens. And I think that trauma is a huge obstacle for us uh, in life, by the way. Uh, what I was saying there is that I think that we have really hyper-focused on this, this word trauma, that, you know, capital T, small t trauma, and that really that this conversation is best held in the, or, or often, by the way, and there's a time for let's talk trauma, and, and certainly I, I love to, to geek, out on, uh, geek out on that. I mean, it's, it's vital for what we're doing in the work that I do. We're, we're, you know, that's our focus is best practices in, in trauma, post-traumatic growth. But trauma, I think hyper-focusing on it can be counterproductive to really uh, an overall health and wellness conversation. And the reason for that is because trauma really is universal. And I think one of the things that's going on out there is that we've tried to develop this hierarchy of suffering and suffering really is universal. Uh, don't ask me, ask humans for, you know, for all eternity. Hard to be human. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so hyper-focusing on trauma can, can be kind of productive. It turns out that humans are very naturally resilient. And even when we have these horrible events, which are going to happen to all of us, we are going to have injuries. We are, our friends and family are going to have injuries and illnesses. 
Um, we're going to get knocked back and, and have take heavy blows in our lives. We're all going to die. Uh, just the existential suffering around that is massive, although it's not usually attributed to counseling work. It's certainly part of the work I do. So you're going to have suffering and laser focusing on it, I think, rather than looking at it as just one dimension of the myriad, infinite, you know, um, human experience, uh, rich tapestry, if you will, of human experience does us a disservice. Um, but so I, it's natural that the pendulum needs to swing from like no trauma and awareness, no trauma, you know, informed anything to now everything is about trauma. Everything is trauma informed. Uh, and again, Kelly, like you're talking about what the Buddhists say of middle ground, but it is, it, it's good for us to, you know, to find some middle ground. Yeah. What specifically brought you to Antarctica? Why are you there? What are you doing? Uh, the organization I work with has already uh, plugged pretty hard. Yeah, they have had a long-standing uh, relationship with the National Science Foundation, the NSF's USAF program. I know it's a lot of acronyms, but you work around first responders and with us, so so you can go easy on me. They, uh, for many many years, were coming down here to do uh, uh, assessments, mental health assessments on the presumptive, on the candidates that were going to do winter overs, wind fly down here, which is for the people that stay around. So I'm here during the summer, the Austral summer, which is the high season down here. They would come down here and assess people who were gonna stay down here for that like full on science fiction indoors, you know, project where they're here for six months. And they're literally more isolated during that period than the people on the space station because you can access the space station all year, whereas you, we don't have any technology that can come down here to Antarctica that can get to the South Pole wow. for those people. So they would come do assessments for those that we've since changed the model, but they had an existing relationship and our organization was in the Rolodex when they started thinking, hey, listen, we've got to do some counseling. Let's, you know, this would be supportive. Let's try and be a little more proactive. Our name as a uh, behavioral healthcare provider was in the Rolodex. We'd already come down here. And um, I, just due to my life circumstances right now, uh, was able to taper my practice uh, enough so that I could spend half of the austral summer season down here. And then a colleague of mine, Dr. Trey Cole, is going to be down here actually to relieve me in five days. So uh, I just lucked into it, Kelly, and it's a cool, it's a super cool gig. It's been amazing. And it's a focal population that I never uh, would have worked with down here in this little village. Yeah, super cool opportunity, I think. Was it like on your bucket list? Was it ever on your radar? I'm going to go to Antarctica one day. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't one of the, my bucket list things. Although when, when I heard it, I'm like, uh, I have to do that. I definitely have to check that box. But, uh, but no, Kelly, it wasn't, uh, but I'm certainly glad I did it. Yeah. So five days back to Denver, what's going on then? Get back in the office, treating patients, seeing clients? or No, as a matter of fact, I have the benefit. Um, I'm going to be uh, meeting my wife in Christchurch, New Zealand when I get out of here. Wow. Uh, and we're going to go do a, a two-week lap, a two-week loop of the South Island of New Zealand which I'm very much looking forward to. There's no green here at all. So the first thing I'm going to do is have a 50-gallon vat filled with salad and roughage and go look at some green stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so what advice do you have for people who want to help 
in this situation help with first responders or even first responders who are hesitating to get help? What advice do you have for people listening? Well, first is just to kind of like learn, learn about this stuff, right? Uh, one of the concepts that we didn't hit uh, super hard in our conversation is post-traumatic growth. Uh, we have learned a great deal in the last 10, 20 years, both from neuroscience and uh, from the consolidation of a lot of the evidence that we've already had, meta-studies and so forth, that really there's there are some predictable things we can do to support people who have um, had traumatic injury. And uh, educating yourself is one of those pieces. And then using your resources, right? I mean, a lot of people, and this is both for family, friends, and uh, first responders, that really first responders, many of us would rather die of thirst, you know, than, you know, reach out for a drink. So we would die of thirst leaned up against the drinking fountain of resources. And there are a lot of resources out there. Uh, I would urge people to, you know, it's a very leadership uh, trait that you model behaviors, like model behaviors, using resources, showing, demonstrating that you're doing that uh, can really be awesome. And then really trying to be inclusive, right? Uh, and, and make sure that you've got connectivity with your people, with your tribe, not just your responder tribe, but make sure you're, you know, nurturing the the uh, the relationships around you. You know, we're always a resource. Uh, clinicians are always a resource, although I don't think that counseling is necessarily a panacea. It can really provide a lot of perspective. And then just taking care of yourself, right? You want to put that oxygen mask on yourself first before you go out there and do that good work helping other people. Self-care. That's right. Do you have any social media or websites or anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, interesting you would ask. Uh, the company I'm with, Nicoletti Flater, we just did a whole systemic upgrade of our social media stuff. It's supposed to be coming out here uh, by the beginning of this next year. Please look us up on all the usual platforms. We've got some good information uh, coming out there, as well as uh, some, you know, some some pictures and updates about what we're up to right now. We're super excited about. So look that up at Nicoletti Flater Associates. Okay, I will put all of that in the show notes and link to it all so people can find out more about that. Thank you so much, Jed, for coming on the show. I really appreciate having you here. I love your insight as a first responder and a counselor. So much good information. Thank you so much. Kelly, thank you. It was a pleasure. Very much appreciate the work that you're doing, Kelly. Seriously. Hey, guys, that was an awesome show. Manthropology is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Brink. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback helps us improve and reach more listeners like you. You can stay updated on all things Manthropology by following us on Instagram at ManthropologyPod. Questions? Email us at info at ManthropologyPod.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week on Manthropology.